Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you today. Boy, we had a great time yesterday. We had, I mean, literally hundreds of kids out there, over 12,000 pieces of candy. I can account for eating about 100 of that, that 12,000. It was great. Shana did a great job putting it all together. And I want to thank all you trunk or treater people for coming out. You did a great job. Thank you for serving your community. And I hope you and your families had fun. You know, Halloween's something that's here. And I, I know we can protest it till we're blue in their face. And, and you know, um, I really believe that, that, uh, Satan doesn't believe in the evil of Halloween as much as, as churches do, okay? I really do. I think where Satan does his work is not dressing, somebody dressing up in a scary little outfit and pretending that they're an alien or whatever it is. I, I, I think uh, it's in envy and jealousy and bitterness and, 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 and all that other stuff. That's where he does his work. So if somebody comes around your house today, can I ask you to consider, I know you're a Christian, I know you love God, but don't consider that little child that comes up to your house, rings your doorbell, a threat to, your, to the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God wavers on the, the attack of a small child in a costume at your front door, then it's not much of a kingdom. So just hand them the candy and tell them that you love them and that they have a great day. That's just my little thoughts about Halloween. So. Hey, I hope you're having a great day. We are in the middle of this series called Framing, and it is really speaking to my heart. We talked about how we've been framed by grace, but we also learned last, uh, last couple of weeks that, that we do our own framing. We put people's picture in a frame, and we determine value about them. We have, a, we, we have our own little way of putting people in a, a description. We meet them at the store within five seconds. We determine whether they're jerks or not, or they're snobs, or whether or not they like us or not, and we'll immediately put a frame up. And we do this all the time, and we need to be very careful about that. But what we noticed is that we actually do God that way. Um, we don't, I don't think anybody would, would actually say, well, I'm a theologian about yourself, but every one of us frame God. We come up with a few experiences of life, and then we begin to frame what we think about God, and uh, we come up with this, this idea about him. And that's why we find in Scripture that when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, that the first four were about framing him. Because God is really concerned about how we think about him, not because his self-image, you know, he's up there, do they like me, or anything like that. Uh, but rather, he wants to make sure that we think about him rightly, that we don't get the right to just frame God in any way that we want to think of, it, kind of like a God of your own making or the God of your imagination. But rather, God starts off this relationship with Israel and with us, and he says, listen, first thing that we need to get about interpreting life, interpreting one another, is that we got to frame God correctly. And so God begins to give us insights about that framing. So how you frame God is important. And, and what comes into your mind when you think about God will predict with certainty your spiritual future, okay? Whatever you think about God, that will determine your spiritual future. So that's why it's so important that we're thinking about God the right way. And it's so funny, because I, I run into people, nobody doesn't have an opinion about God. I've never met anybody who, who doesn't have an opinion of God. And you say, well, I'm an atheist. You have an opinion about God. You actually called yourself something based upon your view of whether or not there's a God or not. 
But everybody, and I don't care if you're, you're working underneath a car with five other guys, and, and I don't know what would be wrong that there would have to be five guys under a car. That, that does sound kind of weird, you know. But, you know, let's say you're working in the, in the garage with somebody, and everybody in that, in that garage will have an opinion about what they think about God, what they think about church, what they think about Jesus. So too often, we assume that our experiences are the sum of our knowledge about God. We frame God based upon our experiences. I was raised Catholic, you know, and that had, had, had its pluses and it had, a, it had a couple minuses with it as well. Matter of fact, it had so many minuses that yesterday Calvin and Mary showed up dressed as a nun and a priest. And uh, I was like, hey. you know, I kind of felt like a, a, like a throwback to my parochial school days. I was raised at parochial schools from the youngest age all the way through high school. I went to an all boys Catholic high school. Okay, so when all of a sudden when I saw that nun outfit and I saw that priest outfit, it just sent fear through my, my body. But, you know, a lot of us, we've gotten these, we've heard weird things. We've, we've listened to people like me on a Sunday morning uh, present God in a certain way. And maybe we walked away. Maybe how we were treated by a church because of the color of our skin or maybe because you had a tattoo. Like God really gives a rip about tattoos, you know, or because you, you struggle smoking cigarettes. You know, I mean, it's like how ridiculous we have been, particularly in the, in the Bible Belt, on how we frame God. And God's really concerned about we get him right. So that's why when I experience things that are negative or I don't understand God, I'm trying to figure out hell, I'm trying to figure out heaven, I'm trying to figure out pain, suffering, and all the other things, I, I always take a step back in order to kind of frame God rightly is and I look at the life of Christ. Jesus said, to his disciples, and he's speaking to Philip, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. So Jesus is like, if you want to get God right, if you want to get the Father right, if you want to get the unseen right or seen in your head, he said, Philip, get me right. Because when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Philip said to him, he was just like us, he couldn't get it. He said, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So whatever thought you have about God based upon the death of a loved one with cancer or based upon your reading the news about a tsunami in Indonesia, uh, or some crazy guy walking into a mall and shooting people up in the name of God, or, or your interpretation of God based upon the holy wars uh, of Muslims and Christians fighting against each other. Throw all that out. Just throw all that out and get back to seeing the Father in the face and the life of Christ. And last week, Stacy introduced us to that framing of God and his love for all people and his faithfulness. We saw Jesus' uh, love impartially shown to a woman who was outside of Israel, who was a woman, so all the social stigma was against her, and yet we saw the love of Jesus go beyond the perimeter of Israel beyond gender, beyond um, wherever, whatever position she had in life, and you saw the love of God come to her. 
Jesus was trying to tell us something about God. You're not that far away from him. He is near each and every one of us. He loves every one of us. And he is faithful to us when we reach out to him. We seek him with all of our hearts. He is found by us. And the God that we find, we find in the face of Jesus. So today, through Jesus, we're going to frame God in his goodness. And this is going to be a little, this is going to be a little bit different because I'm trying to think on how you think about this and how I think about it and how we get in difficulties with God, about thinking about God. So I'm, I'm going to go a little bit sideways on this. One of the things I've learned is that God looks at our lives through perfect eyes of goodness. See, George Clooney's got dreamy eyes, okay? I'm not, I mean, I'm just saying I've been told by my wife. He's got dreamy eyes. You know, there might be a, a woman that we, we'd say, well, amazing eyes, you know. Uh, I, you guys know in that last Star Wars movie, the very last one, there's that one character, and there's this woman that helps from a, a Ted, probably you could throw out her name, but uh, all you get to see is her eyes, and she helps that one guy. I think some of you are Star Wars people know who I am. Um, and, and all you see her eyes. But it's like, oh my goodness, her eyes are amazing. Watch the last, last movie. You'll see it. Uh, but there's something, something about her eyes. Well, those are dreamy eyes. But when you get looked at by perfect eyes of goodness, that is something amazing. And that's what Jesus has. Perfect eyes of goodness. That, that regardless of how he looks at us, he looks at us with goodness. Have you had people look at you with kind of weird eyes? You know, um, they, you know they kind of like do that to you. And they kind of look at you like you're a little weird or they roll their eyes at you. But rather what we're going to find is that God looks at us through perfect eyes and that he's always... Um, communicating goodness to us. Jeremiah 29, 11, though it was spoken in a different context, it does kind of reveal what is behind the eyes of God. When he says, for I know that the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a, a future and a hope. That's what's behind the eyes of God. That's what's behind the intentions of God for you today is that he looks upon your life and he wants to bring welfare to you. He doesn't want calamity to rule your life. He wants to give you a hope and he wants to give you a future. This picture of God is framed over and over again in the life of Christ. Let me, let me just read this to you because this is, again, when we hear Jesus, we're hearing God, okay? There is no difference. Okay, any idea that, well, the God of the Old Testament was the Father and then the God of the New Testament is Jesus, just blow that, that's, that's, there's, that's, we came up with that idea because we couldn't figure out God, so we framed him, Old Testament God, New Testament God, kind of two different gods, the Father in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, and now the Holy Spirit. It's like, no, that's just, that's totally bogus. Uh, we just heard God in the Old Testament and he has nothing but welfare towards us. But now listen to Jesus say it this way. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, just can I, 
I just feel prompted to say, can you focus on that phrase that God says, I am humble in heart? Because I never really thought about God being humble. Did you? I mean, I always thought of him about being kind of like all bowed up, you know, just kind of all lightning, you know, his outfit's all lightning around him, you know, and it's all, you know, kind of like just ready to, uh, you know, but Jesus is communicating us with perfect accuracy. According to Hebrews, he is the expressed image of the unseen God. He is accurate to every degree. And he communicates and he says, I am humbled of heart, meaning this, I am not trying to hurt you. I am not trying to get over on you. I am not trying to torch you. I am not all about hell. So you, some of us, we were introduced to Jesus this way. If you died tonight, did you know if you, do you know if you'd spend an eternity in heaven or in hell? Okay? I don't know where, whoever came up with that or it's the original, you know, of Christianity. Our first, hey, let's put our best foot forward. Let's threaten them with heaven or hell if you died tonight. Most of us didn't die that night. So it was a hyperbole anyway. And it was a misrepresentation about the goodness of God. Is heaven and hell really in the scriptures? Yes, it is. But is that, is that our first thought about God? Is that the kind of God, is that what God, is that what I'm hearing right near coming to me? All you are heavy laden and I will give you rest. What are we heavy laden with? Sin, compromise, brokenness, neurological pain, broken marriages. He's like, come on, let's go. Why don't you give me that? I'm humble of heart. Don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you with this. I'm not going to mock you with this. I'm not going to try to shame you with this. I want to give you a hope. I want to give you a future. Man, that's the rightly framed message of God. So in the midst of a burdensome and unsure world, no greater expression of God's goodness could be welcomed. From the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the resurrection, the goodness of God is lived and bled out in front of us. Why? What Jesus said, to give rest to your souls. God bled out in front of us so that we could have rest for our souls. I don't care what you've been told about God. I just presented to you the words of Jesus, the face of God in flesh. Let it just drop into you. I don't care if you're working under cars. I don't care if you're a doctor. I don't care if you're a teacher. I don't care if you've experienced cancer. I don't care if you've experienced victimization, as horrible as that is. Whatever, I don't care what color skin you are, what gender you are. Just hear the voice of God today. Say, I want to give rest to your soul. David spoke of it so poetically, and particularly in a psalm that has been miscontextualized. And that's not a real word, but I made it up for today. That, and it's miscontextualized. This is a, a, a psalm that unfortunately is used only in f funeral homes. Okay, you, you only hear this psalm quoted when somebody has died. And it's so sad because it's an amazing song. I mean, it's an amazing thing. And, and it really just reveals the face of God, the heart of God, and the goodness of God. David said it. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. This is sounding a sure lot like Jesus. Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the same God. Then here's where we kind of like give it over to the funeral homes. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is not a funeral dirge. Okay, the valley of the shadow of death is life. That's where, you, I don't care if you're 30, you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, there's moral death, there's spiritual death, there's a financial death, there is relational death, there's physical death. We just kind of walk in the middle of this valley of things that are constantly threatening us. If you're experiencing a different life than that, please let me know. But I mean, we're working to make our marriages work. We're working to raise our children, to, to make them strong and to know the Lord and to be successful. I mean, otherwise, the second law of thermodynamics is always in play, entropy. We see it, it's, it's, we live in a world that even science bears witness to that we're constantly, if it's left alone, it is a shadow of death. That's not, that's not depressing. <laughs> if you know the goodness of God especially if the goodness of God is, you still there? Yeah, okay. Following you all the days of my life. You're not just when you're 30, not just when you're 50, not just when you're uh, single, not just when you're married, not when, just when you're, you're 70, you know, but all the days of your life. Anybody who has framed a different God than this has given you an, an engraven image. The reason why we had to have a New Testament is because we lost the proper image of God and John declares, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word, the word of God came and dwelt among us, and that, God, that Christ has revealed him. We all got screwed up in our heads about what God is like. And I think we were in that place right now in America. We're all screwed up about God. And so where do you go back to? It's like the touchable, seeable, hearable face of God in Christ. I can be wrong about a gazillion theologies. I could be wrong, I could just name all the theologies I could possibly be wrong about. But you can't get Jesus wrong, okay? Because if you get Jesus right, you get God right. And if you get God right, you get you right. You know, it's just absolutely incredible. This isn't a funeral dirge. This is a declaration of the kind intention of God towards his children. So regardless of what you experience, other stories concerning God, and there are other stories about concerning God, and the acts of his followers, and you gotta be careful about the way Christians act. We're screwy, okay? I'm screwy. You catch me on a bad day, I'll roll my eyes at you. I'll squint my eyes at you. I'll do this to you. But know this, 
that the eyes of God are humble towards you. He will never shame you. He will never reject you. He will always welcome you. His eyes are perfect with goodness, perfect concerning evil that you may be experiencing, perfect when we walk through the valley of the shadows of life. And every one of us have shadows, every one of us. Perfect when you're facing your enemies, perfect when you face death itself. So what about the other stories? Because I'm not gonna just lay this out there because I know some of you are here, but yeah, but I don't understand. What, what, about, uh, what about judgment? Because I hear about God being just or I hear this idea of the judgment of God and the justice of God. And let me just say it this way. Theologians will split hairs over the attributes and the character of God. We try to figure them out. Just like you try to figure me out. Okay, you know, you may say, well, you know, he's a nice guy. Uh, yeah, he's kind of hyper. Um, he's uh, kind of an A-type personality. You begin to put it together a stream of um, ideas about me to kind of come up with a composite collective, an amalgamation of who Paul is, okay? Um, and in theology, we do that as well. But here's how I found what it's like. It's like the spinal cord. I'm very familiar with the spinal cord. I have an intimate relationship with my spinal cord, okay? If you've ever had ruptured discs, multiple ruptured discs, you know that your spinal cord is far more important uh, to you than you, when you were 30, you never thought about your spinal cord. When you're 60, it, it, all your money goes to your spinal cord, okay? But here's the thing I've learned about your spinal cord. At different locations, I can see individual nerves that provide feedback to my brain. In my arm, uh, it, it will give me feedback when I experience pain. But also in that same arm, when my little granddaughter, Ireland, takes my pinky and we're walking around the neighborhood on our country road, my, my, that nerve is sending this beautiful sensation of communion and love and, and we're walking together and she holds on to my little, that same nerve sends that incredible signal. That's a good thing. It tells me when it's hot, it tells me when it's loved. The same reception is used from another group of nerves to send light and sound to my brain. The ache in my belly when I eat too many uh, Snicker bars at Trunk or Treat begin to tell me that you, you kind of maybe overate and you should eat some fiber. The throbbing in my toe when I drop something on it. But all these sensations, whether it's the smell of a flower, whether it's the sight of a beautiful landscape, whether it's the pain that I may experience from an injury, they all make their way to the, the spine and then to the brain. All that information is what? When it's all working the right way, it is good. It is good when a human being rightly gets this feedback from all these different attributes where the nerves are working. Is, is, it that it, is it that it's all different? Well, the signals may be different at times, but when they all get back up to my cerebral cortex, when they all get to the thalamus, when they all get that, all that information is good. 
So when we look at other stories about Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, when we look at Korah's rebellion when the ground opens up and swallows 100,000 people, when we see uh, David take down Goliath, when we see the walls of Jericho fall, but they wipe out all the people that were inside, these are all nerves coming from different stories, but when they all add up, when they get this, it's like God is good. And for me in Christ, that is what God is. When I am exhausted about, you know, we, we have all these theological conversations at, at staff, is hell eternal, is, you know, um, does God, you know, have a body, you know, kind of silly conversations that you're trying to figure out about God, does God have feelings, um, you know, and all those things, and there's a lot of theology around it. When it's all done with, when all those conversations, you know, wind their way up, you know, what do you feel about infant baptism, what do you feel about this, what about women talking in church, what about all that other stuff, and those are all theologies that are out there, but when they all get back up to the brain, what we're supposed to realize is that God is good. And if you're experiencing any other version of God, I am telling you, get back to Jesus because something has polluted, something has distorted the image of God in your mind. There are many times when the feelings for my nerves may be positive and sometimes when they're, they're negative. But like my nerves, it is good when God will give me good feelings and give me bad feelings. You know, we may look at verses and hear verses in the scripture that cause throbbing, okay? Well, if my hand is in boiling water, I want my nerves to tell my brain there's a throbbing going on. And there are verses that talk about, that produce a throbbing. But there are also verses that will communicate pleasantness and love to me as well. Where this happens the most is when we talk about the justice of God or the framing that God is a just God. Because God is a just God. Like I said earlier, God is not made up of disintegrated parts. He's not something in the Old Testament, and now he's nice in the New Testament. No, he is altogether good. And this may strike you in a, in a kind of an odd way to say this, but just remember your nervous system. You've, you were given one not just to live, but as an example of God himself. His mercy, his wrath, his forgiveness are all expressions of his goodness. See, in time and space, we observe it in a prismatic way, but it's all the same light. You know, the goodness of God is broken up in this prismatic way, and we see blues in, in, in the scriptures. We see reds in the scriptures. We see greens, and we, we see yellows, and, and we know that's true. We know that light coming from the sun is not yellow. I hope you knew that. It's not, it's not yellow. It, there's, there's a prismatic effect taking a place. We also know that the sky is not really blue. It's, it, there's an effect there with hydrogen and, and all this other stuff. And, and it's like, but that's the power of light. See, everything that we see from God is good, but sometimes we see it as pleasant. Sometimes we see it represented in this concept of justice, doing the right thing. Sometimes we even see it in wrath. 
And so what we'll do is we'll lock down on the reds. Now God's mean, vindictive. It's like, no, no. For some reason, he had, to ref- he had to present his goodness, his perfect eyes in a form of justice. See, the corrective pain that we experience that tells us to withdraw our hands from the hot stove is coming from the same brain that invites us to sip an aromatic cup of coffee. When you walked in here today, very intentionally, the people who serve you made coffee and ground it today. Why? To fill the auditorium with a, with a beautiful aroma of coffee. Your nerves, your, your sensory system told you about that. But it's the same system that also tells us to pull our hands away from something that will burn it. See, our brains keep us on the good side of hot. The stove will burn you. That's the bad side of good. And a cup of coffee will refresh you. That is the good side of good. To not let you know about the bad side, see, that your, your hand's being burned, that's not good. To let a little child just leave their hand on a hot stove, I hate to visualize it like that for you, that's not good. The fact that the child experiences pain and recoils, that is good. That child now experienced the judgment of what is either good or bad for their lives. So the question is, is what side of good are you on? Because even if you are experiencing and the world experiences the justice of God, it is still experiencing the goodness of God. See, progressive Christianity, and I know we use that a phrase for you a lot, and you don't know what that means because you're, you're not a professional in the world of church. Um, it's really overrated, but cr- progressive Christianity is a movement that's going on in the United States that wants to take, uh, that doesn't like the God of the scriptures. So it's kind of like, yeah, the scriptures are really not, it's really more of a God of your own uh, making in your mind, and also we take only the good things about God you know, the, the, the pleasant things about God, but we're not gonna take the, the bad things that we hear, or the ideas like judgment or discipline. See, Americans want a brain that will find and smell the most beautiful flowers, but it doesn't want the nervous system that alarms them that they're walking on a bed of coals. Matter of fact, we live in a country that not only doesn't want to be told what is wrong, we want to be able to walk on that bed of coals. We want to be able to walk on a bed of coals, even though we know it's bad for our feet, but yet we, want to, we do not want to be confronted by any kind of discipline, any kind of justice in our lives. We just want everybody to be okay. We're in the middle of all this. We want everybody's flowers to smell good. We don't want perfect eyes anymore. We just want dreamy eyes in America. That look at me and say, I'm okay just the way that I am. Sip the coffee and walk on the coals. You're going to be okay. That's not goodness. But the perfect eyes see inside and out. They see through. They see within. They see before. They see after. It knows the intent and the effects of an action as clear as the action itself. That's why Jesus makes a statement like this. When talking to a bunch of dudes about when does adultery really happen, 
because they're trying to get skirt around the rules a little bit. You know, it was that chauvinist type of society that, you know, guys can mess around, but women can't. And, you know, I had a right to throw her aside because, you know, she burnt the toast and I need to get myself a new woman and all that. And I mean, really messed up. Whoa, wait a minute, did I just describe America? Uh, but, but let's just pretend we're still in the, in, the, in the New Testament. And Jesus says to him, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in, her, in his heart. What is that the function of? Perfect eyes. See, I can be up here and, and, you know, just look at you and it's like, yes, sister in the Lord, I just, you know, love you with the love of the Lord. But I can be brewing and perking in here, having all kinds of nasty, gnarly stuff going on. But I can put on a good show, but rather the perfect eyes of God say, listen, Paul, if you want to know goodness, it's not, it's not just whether or not you brush up against her. It's not, it's not whether or not you've committed adultery with her. He's like, listen, here's where I want goodness to happen for you. And here's where I see goodness. I see goodness in the thought, in the intention, in the heart. God knows exactly what is perfect for us. And he causes all things to work together good for us. Justice is not the opposite of goodness. It is an expression of goodness. And those who do dislike justice are on the wrong side of goodness. When you don't like justice, what you're saying is you don't like goodness. You think everybody should be able to walk on hot coals? You think you should be able to walk on hot coals? Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean by being on the wrong side of goodness. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead and he's hanging out with Lazarus and Mary and and Martha and they're they're kind of having dinner together and all this stuff. Let me just let you hear what it sounds like to be on the wrong side of goodness. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the dead guy that was raised, who Jesus had raised from the dead So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. The large crowd of the Jews that learned that he was there, they came, not only for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to dead also, because on account of him, the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. See, when you're on the wrong side of good, good doesn't look good no matter who it's in. They not only wanted to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus. Doesn't this sound absurd to you? It's like, why would you want to kill good? It's like, I understand you still couldn't figure out Jesus, but I mean, he was dead. And three days later, he was raised, and, and, and you want to kill Lazarus too. Raising Lazarus was good. The chief priests wanted to kill the good. And we all agree that the priests refused to celebrate the good. I think there isn't a person here that if all of a sudden you saw them attack Lazarus at this dinner, that you wouldn't have all of a sudden freaked out, and you would have been like, oh, I ain't letting you do that. That is totally wrong. You would have gotten that. Attacking the good would have been wrong. So let me ask you this. 
why do we get angry with God when he tells us that we have sinned? Because when we have sinned, we are attacking the good. Why is it that we live in an America where churches no longer will teach about sin? We, because it, it makes our, you know, reminds us that there's something about us that needs to be challenged by good. But yet we all realize killing Lazarus would be killing the good. What about when we compromise the principles of God? We are killing the good. Justice is not the evil of God. It's not God being a bad person. It is the goodness of God to expose it in me. It is the justice of of God to help me feel the destructive power of the hot coals on the bottom of my feet as I try to walk on it. That's goodness. So when you experience that you've done something wrong, you know, when, when you were challenged by something in your life, but yet you got, God calls, tells you to do it one way and you do it the other way and you come into that conflict, don't run from that conflict. That is the goodness of God in you. It is the kindness of God that leads us to a place of turning away from that thing. So, I'm gonna skip about a gazillion pages of my notes. I'm just gonna call it right there. Why? It's because we've been given an image of God, I believe, whether it's in movies, whether it's in, from the pulpit, that God's got nothing but wrath against you. And we've also been told that that wrath in some way is evil. You remember that story, Jesus is in the, in the temple and he walks in there There's nothing wrong with having tables in a temple. We've got temples, I mean tables back here. But all of a sudden he's walking around and this place that is supposed to be a place of the good, the worship of God, the communion of God with his people. He begins to walk around and he sees that they're selling and buying things in the midst of this place. And then Jesus looks at this violation of the good. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the good. And when he sees that thing that is attacking the good, what does Jesus do? Jesus begins to flip over tables. And today in modern theology and progressive theology, we will say that proves that Jesus was not God because he had a temper. He lost it. I tell you that it could not be a greater lie. It's what Jesus went when he went to a place where the good should dwell, where Lazarus should live, where the good has been done. He walked in there and he saw something that attacks the good. And Jesus in his goodness justly responds by flipping the table. Is it because he all of a sudden became, you know, messed up in his head that he lost it? It's like, no, Jesus, is willing to fight for the good to be in your temple. And your heart is the temple of God. And there are times when God will be willing to flip your tables to save your good, to bring the good of God into your life.
So whether I experience pain or joy, healing or sickness, whether I experience forgiveness or even guilt itself, I am confident that I am being looked over by good eyes and that there are times when God just brings the fragrance of the flower to me and he says to me, come to me, all you are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And as a result of that relationship with him, I experience his rest. And there are some times when that same goodness, the exact same God will come into my life and he's like, Paul, I see a table over here. And at this table, you plan to kill Lazarus. You're trying to kill the good. I'm going to flip this table in your life. And I love you so much, I'm gonna have to flip it. I believe we're experiencing this in America today, that God is flipping the tables in our culture because we got messed up about what good is. Good for who? What is good? We want just flowers, but we don't want the neurological pain of when we're told we're wrong. God doesn't point out sin in my life to hurt me. He, pour, he gives me the knowledge of, he, he, let me rephrase that. God does not bring me to the awareness of sin in my life because he wants to destroy me but he is willing to allow me to be hurt so that I can experience goodness in my life, his goodness. So where do you stand when it comes to the goodness of God? Are you on the right side of goodness, experiencing the, plen- the pleasantness, or are, or are you in a place right now where you're, you're on the wrong side of goodness? It's still goodness, but you feel conviction. You feel the hurt. But yet, God does not flip over tables just to destroy the temple. He flips over the tables to restore the heart of each and every one of us. So I don't know what God has de-evolved to in your life. He wants you to know today that, that he looks at you with humble eyes. He doesn't want to hurt you. In the middle of the breakup of your marriage, in the middle of the, the difficulties of your body, illnesses, in the middle of your successes, in the middle of your failures, in the middle of your addictions, there's nothing but the kind eyes of God wanting to restore your soul so that goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. What an amazing God that we serve. So as you come and receive communion, remember you're being invited to the table the one who poured out his very blood, he took, he knew you were on the wrong side of goodness. He knew I was on the wrong side of goodness. There's crazy verses in the Bible. They sound kind of harsh, but why don't you put them up, Ted? I've already closed up my iPad and don't remember them. But that we've all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. I do remember it because it was spoken to my soul. This is not an insult. This is the kindness of God saying, hey, I know, I know about you with my kind eyes. I'm looking deep into your soul. I know what's going on in your heart. And I'm, I need to give you some, I need to give you the bad news, but from goodness. 
you're not all that. You're not as good as you think you are. And just because you're better than the guy next to you doesn't make you good. And it's like, I gotta tell you, we've all sinned and you've fallen short of the glory of God. I'm like, okay, okay, all right, now I know where I stand. I'm on hot coals, okay. Another verse says it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. It's like, okay. That was spoken to me by kind eyes, not some preacher behind a pulpit going, we've all sinned and fallen short from the glory of God, okay? I don't know what kind of distorted whack job that is. What about come unto me, all you are heavy laden, with what? Sin. And I will give you what, hell? No, rest for your soul. I'll bring you forgiveness and healing. Oh yeah, hold on, you're not gonna like this. I'm gonna flip this table over for you. It's like, yeah, don't worry, we'll clean that up later. Jesus knew that every one of us were on the bad side of good, so the justice of God was laid upon him who knew no sin, because God knew we couldn't take the wrath. God knew the amount of ungood in us, so he laid all of it on Christ. And Christ became our Lazarus. So are you trying to kill the story of Lazarus in your life? Because when you attack Christ on the cross, when you reject the cross, you are sitting with the Pharisees and trying to kill Lazarus. Because there's one greater than Lazarus who intercedes out of goodness for our souls to give us rest as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and darkness. So where do you stand? Are you on the wrong side of goodness or are you in Christ today? As you come and receive the, the communion, God's saying to you with open hands, I know that you're broken. I, I know that there's a lot of things in you that are not good. I wanna give you rest. I wanna forgive you. I want to cleanse you. I wanna restore you, bring you by gentle waters into green pastures. Fathers, we enter into this moment with you. We come to the cross, uh, we come to this moment. You didn't invite us back to the 10 commandments and have a moment bowing before all the things that remind us of what we can't do. But we thank you for letting us know that we can't do them. But today you invited us to the table of Christ in the presence of our enemies, all the things that attack us, all the things that, that try to sabotage our lives in and out of us. You invite us to that table where goodness and mercy dwell and will follow us all the days of our life. Can I encourage you? Jesus is a big deal. Don't wait until you figure out hell or the theology of the cosmos or figure out, well, what about the flood? Don't worry about that. We'll figure that out some other day. Or maybe we won't. Right now, what's most important is find rest for your soul. To have truth restored and goodness brought into your life. And today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, I invite you, God invites you to get on the right side of good. 
because good will not be thwarted, whether it's in pleasant spaces or in places of wrath, good will always prevail. And he invites us into pleasant spaces through Jesus Christ. Welcome Christ into your life. Receive his invitation of rest for your soul.